You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. Hello, everyone. A quick note before I begin. With the release of this episode, Lucky Number 13, Season 1 of Fireside Canada has come to an end. I'd like to thank everyone who has been listening and, like I always say at the end of each episode, joining me in becoming part of a Canadian folk tradition. I also want to give an additional heartfelt thanks to those of you who have helped the show grow by sharing it with others, leaving positive ratings and reviews, and connecting with me through my website and through social media. It's been exciting seeing the listener count, modest as it is, slowly rise over the months, and to see people tune in from all across Canada, America, and Europe. The show will now go dark while I work on material for Season 2, which I hope to release this fall. It's a lot of work researching, writing, editing, and producing, so in the meantime, I'd like to ask you a favor. If you haven't already, please take a moment to log on to Apple Podcasts or Podchaser.com and leave Fireside Canada a five-star rating and a positive review, and share it on social media or with someone you know. It would mean a lot and help me ensure that the show can continue for many more seasons to come. Thank you as always for listening, and now, on with the show. According to legend, in the summer of 1884, a wave of excitement crashed through the town of Yale, British Columbia, as a crowd of people flooded the train station in the hopes of catching a glimpse of a strange and mysterious creature. It was said that the beast had been caught by a number of railroad men just a few miles outside of town, and it was unlike anything they had ever seen. Over the next several days, it was rumored that the local doctor had examined the creature, but could not identify exactly what it was, and now it and its keeper were on the move. At least one newspaper article was published about the event, and a local legend was born. It's the story of one town's brief encounter with a hairy, bipedal, ape-like creature from the wilderness of the Pacific Northwest. Yes, you guessed it. I'm speaking, of course, about Jacko, the ape boy. You're listening to Fireside Canada, my podcast about Canadian legends, lies, and lore. I'm David Williams. Tonight's episode is on the lighter side, as we explore a small town legend and its hazy, tenuous connections to a celebrated chief and medicine man and a legendary American showman. Okay. So maybe you didn't guess that I was speaking about Jacko the Ape Boy. It's much more likely that you considered the clues and landed squarely on one of the most renowned and most hunted cryptids in the world, the elusive Sasquatch, or Bigfoot, to our friends down south. Of course, local indigenous groups have their own stories about these creatures or spirits that they've told for generations. The word Sasquatch, in fact, comes from the Halkamelem language of the Salish peoples. But back in 1884, when Jacko was first introduced to the world with the short but tantalizing headline, What is it? The best answer the unnamed author could come up with was, quote, something of the gorilla type. Despite the intriguing details of Jacko's capture and the profound impact that a British Columbia gorilla, as it was called, would have had on 19th century natural history, 
the story about Jacko failed to generate much attention. In fact, it would be nearly 80 years before people really started to take notice, but once they did, they would start to draw connections between this mostly forgotten legend and the elusive, now world-famous, Sasquatch. There is a vast amount of Sasquatch lore out there. Traditional and sacred stories, legends, sightings, and, of course, hoaxes, from the time before time right up to present day. The topic is perfect for an episode, or three, of Fireside Canada, but that's not our focus tonight. Tonight, we're giving Jacko his due. Because while this tale has become an iconic entry in the annals of Sasquatch lore, it also stands firmly on its own. It is a singular legend and a great story, as mysterious today as it was over 130 years ago. So grab a drink, take a seat by the fire, and I'll tell you the story of the curious creature of Yale, Jacko the Ape Boy. Act 1. The Capture It was the engineer who saw it first. As the train rounded the corner on the east end of the number four tunnel, Ned Austin saw what appeared to be a man lying between the rocky bluff and the railroad tracks. Its arms and legs stretched out in the dirt, a black form in stark contrast with the red-brown earth, green brush, and golden sun of the sweltering summer's day. He blew the brake signal and the train squealed to a halt. Then he called back to the conductor and others on board. Ned turned back just in time to see the figure bolt upright, utter a quick, sharp bark, and begin to scramble its way up the rocky bluff. The crew was awestruck. It wasn't a man at all. It was something else. Covered from head to toe in thick, black hair, it was similar to a bear, but this creature was moving upright in a loping gait. Its wide hands dangled from powerful forearms so long that they would have swung past its knees if they weren't desperately grasping at the side of the cliff as the creature tried to escape. The conductor, express messenger, baggageman, and brakesman all leapt from the train and immediately gave chase, scrambling up the rocky slope from their position slightly higher up the bluff. Within minutes, they had corralled the creature onto an isolated shelf of rock. The conductor... One R.J. Craig continued to crawl on his hands and knees until he towered over the creature from 40 feet above. He loosened a large piece of rock, lined it up, and let it fall. The boulder tumbled down the cliff along with a rain of sand and pebbles before striking the creature's head and knocking it out cold. Amidst the echoing of cheers from the train below, the four men rushed to the creature's side bound it tightly with the train's bell rope, lowered it to the ground, and locked it in the luggage car. Back on board with their newly captured prize, the off-brake signal was given, and the train chugged its way to the town of Yale. Now, you might think the way they captured the creature sounds a bit cruel, even barbaric, and you'd be right. At the time, the railroad workers living near Yale had earned the humorously ironic nickname of Onderdonk's Lambs. Onderdonk after the name of their employer, and Lambs due to their not-so-innocent reputation. Plus, there's also the fact that much of the world was still wrestling with the concept of basic human rights, let alone animal rights, and the town of Yale wasn't what you would call a beacon of morality. 
Today, with a population of less than 200, Yale is just one more sleepy little hamlet along the Trans-Canada Highway, about a two-hour drive east from Vancouver. But back in 1884, this former Hudson's Bay Company fort and gold rush boomtown was nearing the end of its third life, this time as a rowdy railroad town. Thirteen years prior, the colony of British Columbia had become the sixth province in Canada, with the understanding that the federal government would take on the colony's debt and build a railway to the coast. When construction finally began in 1878, Yale was designated as construction headquarters for the section of track that would snake its way through the Fraser Canyon. This particular section of the Canadian Pacific Railway was especially difficult, and the man in charge, Andrew Underdonk, needed men who were tough enough and desperate enough to rise to the challenge. Many of them, about 2,000 or so, were Chinese laborers who were brought north from San Francisco or across the Pacific. About 5,000 more were, as historian T.W. Patterson put it, quote, men of all nationalities, races, and backgrounds, inexperienced youths, adventurers, ex-convicts, lunatics, and ordinary working men who poured into the former boomtown to build a railroad through hell, end quote. These were men who were willing to risk their lives among constant rock slides, cave-ins, and dynamite accidents, all while dangling from the treacherous cliffs of the canyon to drill and blast out a railway grade. Men who, when they died at the age of 27, were declared by the local paper to be middle-aged. Men who would spend the bulk of their pay in the saloons and back alleys of a town where, according to one reporter from the Toronto Globe, quote, the majority of law was perfectly powerless, end quote. The point is, many in Yale were the kind of men whose first thought upon seeing a rare and earth-shattering creature would be, how can I exploit this? That Globe reporter went on to describe Yale on a typical payday, a momentous event that occurred just once each month. Quote, the one long main business street fronting on the river presented a scene and sounds at once animated and grotesque, bizarre and risque. The shell-like shacks of saloons, where of every third building nearly was one, fairly buzzed and bulged like Brobdenagian wasps' nests, whose inmates, in a continual state of flux, ever and anon hurled in and out in twos and threes or tangled wrangling masses. Painted and bedizened women lent a garish color to the scene. On the hot and dusty roadside, or around timber, rails, and other construction debris, men in advanced stages of intoxication rolled and fought or snored in bestial oblivion, end quote. Legend tells us that it was somewhere within or around this hive of bestial oblivion that a mysterious creature was delivered, bound, and examined by a select few of its denizens. By the time the train arrived in Yale, a sizable crowd had assembled on the platform. Someone had telephoned from Spuzzum Flat, a tiny station a little over seven miles north, and told those in Yale about the successful capture of a mysterious creature. Word spread, and soon much of the town was buzzing with excitement. As the train came to a halt, the crowd forced its way into the luggage car, but found nothing. They were told that the creature and its captors had disembarked at the machine shops, about three-quarters of a mile outside of town. Meanwhile, somewhere nearby, the town's doctor was quietly ushered into a locked room and came face to face with a strange creature unlike anything he had seen before. 
crouching nervously on the wooden floor, its long arms bound together in heavy iron shackles. The animal, or Jacko as the men called it, uttered an occasional half-bark, half-growl as it watched its captors with anxious eyes. Its downturned face would have seemed almost human if it weren't completely covered in hair. In fact, with the exception of its hands and feet, Jacko's entire body was covered in strong, thick black hair about one inch in length. The doctor guessed that the creature measured about four feet seven inches in height and weighed 127 pounds. The men told the doctor that Jacko liked to eat berries over all other foods and that it relished the taste of fresh milk. The group then watched in amazement as Jacko grasped a thick berry branch that had been tossed at its feet and wrenched it in two, a feat of exceptional and inhuman strength. The doctor surmised that Jacko must have been some sort of unknown species of gorilla and advised the men to avoid giving Jacko any meat, lest it turn savage. According to the story, all of this transpired on Monday, June 30th, 1884. By Friday, July 4th, the story was printed on page 3 of the British Colonist, British Columbia's leading newspaper. The article declared that a Mr. George Tilbury of Yale had become Jacko's handler, and that he had plans to travel to London, England to exhibit the curious creature. As far as we can tell, Jacko never made it, and the story was forgotten. Until, seven decades later, a reporter stumbled upon the article and shared it with some of the world's leading Sasquatch experts. Act 2. The Search for Jacko Newspaper stories and reports about large, hairy creatures that stalked the forests of the Pacific Northwest began to appear in large numbers in the mid-19th century. But the iconic Sasquatch, or Bigfoot, would remain in the margins of the public consciousness until the late 1950s or early 1960s, when professional journalists and researchers began to write books on the subject. One of those journalists was the late John Green, a respected author and renowned authority who compiled more than 3,000 sightings and tracking reports. Sometime in the 1950s, an historian unearthed the forgotten Jacko article and shared it with Green and his fellow researcher, René de Hinden. As Green began to research the topic further, another researcher, Ivan T. Sanderson, included the story in his 1961 book, Abominable Snowman, Legend Come to Life, where he concluded that Jacko may have been a juvenile Sasquatch. From there, the old newspaper article suddenly became an important part of Sasquatch history and lore. The curious creature of Yale was famous once again, and researchers realized that, if the story was true, they had an important mystery on their hands. If Jacko was real, what happened to him? Well, there's no shortage of speculation. Some early theories suggested that Jacko and his handler jumped aboard the first train heading east, but that can't be right because, if you remember, the Transcontinental Railway was still being built. It wouldn't be finished until November 1885. So with neither rails nor roads leading east through the Rockies, everyone's attention turned west, through the Fraser Valley to the Pacific coast. Perhaps the most popular opinion is that Jacko made his way to the small town of Granville, renamed later that year to Vancouver. The amazing creature, they say, was exhibited to a somewhat sparse audience at 25 cents per head before being loaded onto a steamship at Burrard Inlet, 
presumably destined for some larger metropolis. According to legend, somewhere along the way, Jacko's handlers let curiosity get the best of them. Curious about what was beneath all that hair, they apparently shaved Jacko from head to toe. But it was all too much. The combination of abusive treatment, a strange diet, incredible stress, and surely unattended head trauma from his capture led to Jacko growing increasingly ill and his eventual death. Having lost their promise of sideshow riches and world fame, it's said that Jacko's handlers unceremoniously threw his body overboard, condemning the only proof of the Bigfoot's existence to the oblivion of the Pacific Ocean. Now, all of these details come from conjecture and rumor. Many people have been interviewed over the years, and while some remember excitement about Jacko when they were kids or recall hearing stories from their parents and grandparents, no one has gone on record as actually having seen the creature. But that doesn't mean these stories are any less compelling. One of the most intriguing is referenced in the 2011 booklet Yale and the Strange Story of Jacko the Ape Boy, written by Sasquatch researchers and authors Christopher Murphy and Barry Blount. Inside, they report that a First Nations artist named Ellen Neal recalled being told about a mysterious ape boy that was being exhibited near Burrard Inlet back in 1885. Apparently, that information came from none other than August Jack Catalano, the highly respected Squamish chief and medicine man. Now, despite Miss Neal's recollections, researchers haven't been able to find any evidence that can confirm the Burrard Inlet exhibition. But that's not as surprising as you might think. Back in 1885, what is now the city of Vancouver, one of the most expensive places to live on the planet, was such a backwater town, the big shots at the railroad company couldn't decide if the railway should terminate there or if they should save 12 miles of track and just end it in the city of Port Moody. While there are no records of Jacko actually being in Vancouver, there are some newspaper articles that suggest Jacko was at least westward bound. Eight days after the British colonist broke the story about Jacko's capture, the British Columbian, a newspaper published in New Westminster, reported on a rumor that Jacko had somehow wound up in the local jail. Quote, The Wild Man Last Tuesday, it was reported that the Wild Man, said to have been captured at Yale, had been sent to this city and might be seen at the jail. A rush of citizens instantly took place, and it is reported that not fewer than 200 impatiently begged admission into the Skookum House. The only wild man visible was Mr. Moresby, governor of the jail, who completely exhausted his patients answering inquiries from the sold visitors. End quote. This article has confused some people in the world of Sasquatch research, and it has been cited, I think erroneously, by many as a story about Yale. For their booklet, Sasquatch researchers Murphy and Blount actually traveled to Yale to seek out what was left of the town's old jail. But this article was published in New Westminster, and there's no dateline that suggests it was written from or about Yale. It simply states that the wild man had been, quote, sent to this city and might be seen at the jail, end quote. This city, meaning New Westminster. And that actually makes a lot more sense. Remember, this is a full eight days after the supposed capture of Jacko. If you had captured a mysterious creature on the edge of the wilderness, it's unlikely you'd hang around for eight full days. It's much more likely that you'd head to New Westminster, the former capital of the colony of British Columbia. 
easily reached from Yale by way of the Fraser River, it would be your next logical step on your way to fame and fortune. After that, there are other, shorter mentions about the curious creature of Yale that seem to have been overlooked or ignored, until now. Perhaps the most intriguing is a single sentence that appeared in the British Colonist on July 6th, just two days after the original Jacko article appeared in that same Victoria-based paper. It appears under the section headline, What Some People Say, and reads, quote, that the wild man captured above Yale has arrived and can be seen at the post office, end quote. Now, if we're to believe this somewhat questionable report, dubiously attributed to some people, it seems that Jacko had found his way through the lower mainland of the province and across the Strait of Georgia to Vancouver Island and the city of Victoria, B.C. in just six days. Was this a joke? Well, it's hard to say. That section of the paper, What Some People Say, seems to have been a sort of catch-all column, a place to throw in some filler for slower news days. Along with that odd revelation about Jacko's presence at the Victoria Post Office, we also learn that an excited bull crashed a picnic in the town of Langley, that the CPR was trying to decide whether they should lay rail on the north side or the south side of a lake, that one L. Lowenberg had a seven-roomed waterfront house for rent for only $20 per month, that the King Tie Company is a leading manufacturer and importer of clothing and groceries, And finally, to quote directly from the paper, it takes an enthusiastic, patriotic Scotchman 48 hours to celebrate. It's clear that this section was part news digest, part classified ads, and part joke column. A sentence about an ape boy exhibition at the post office could easily fall into either category. I managed to find one last report of a Jacko sighting. This one comes almost two months after the initial article and puts Jacko back on the mainland, even further east than New Westminster. On August 23, 1884, the British Columbian published that they had received a letter from a correspondent in Chilliwack, a small community about halfway between Yale and Vancouver. According to the letter, Jacko was being exhibited right there in town. The editor was a bit skeptical, writing, quote, We suppose there is a good point in the joke, but we are really not able to discover it, and we are afraid our readers might be equally unfortunate, end quote. I can't really blame them for their reaction. It's hard to believe that a mythical wild man or ape boy and his handler would still be kicking around the tiny towns of the Fraser Valley when they could be living large in San Francisco, New York, or London. Now, I know that's a lot to take in, so here's a quick timeline. June 30th, 1884, Jacko is captured outside of Yale. Four days later, on July 4th, the British colonist, a newspaper in Victoria, breaks the story. The next day, July 5th, the British Columbian, a newspaper in New Westminster, reprints that story. The day after that, July 6th, the British colonist notes in its news digest slash classifieds slash jokes section that some people say Jacko is now in Victoria, the capital of the province, located on Vancouver Island. He can apparently be seen at the post office. According to the British Columbian, two days later, on July 8, 1884, over 200 people crowded the New Westminster Jail, now back on the mainland, in an ill-informed attempt to see the creature. The only beast they encounter is a grouchy and confused jailer. 
Finally, on August 23rd, the British Columbian notes that a correspondent informed them that Jacko was being exhibited in Chilliwack. If we take these two newspapers at their word, Jacko the Ape Boy was bouncing east to west, then east and east again. That's Yale to Victoria, then back on the mainland to New Westminster, and then finally east again to Chilliwack. Taken chronologically, that's a whirlwind trip of almost 500 kilometers. If we're going to consider all of these stories as fact rather than hoaxes, Jacko was going nowhere fast. But let's imagine that at least one of these stories is true. That Jacko did exist and he and his handlers managed to get to a steamship at Burrard Inlet. Where were they headed? The original article noted Jacko's handlers had plans to sail to London, England. But there is one other theory. Act 3. The Ape Boy and the Circus The American anthropologist and cryptozoologist Grover Krantz suggested that the curious creature of Yale may have been bound for New York at the request of none other than P.T. Barnum, the world-famous circus and sideshow king. According to Krantz's theory, Jacko was to join the ranks of Zip the Pinhead, Myrtle the Four-Legged Girl, and General Tom Thumb, and he would be showcased not as Jacko the Ape Boy, but as Jojo the Dog-Faced Boy. Now, you might have heard of Jojo the Dog-Faced Boy, real name Fedor Jeftichu. First exhibited in Barnum's Sideshow in 1884, the same year Jacko was allegedly captured, Jojo had two things in common with Jacko. He was young, just 16 when he first joined Barnum's crew, and he was hairy. He had a medical condition called hypertrichosis, which causes a person to have an abnormal amount of body hair. But that's where the similarities end. While we have no proof that Jacko actually existed, Jojo was a real person who came to the U.S. from Russia. While Jacko could only grunt or bark, Jojo could speak Russian, German, and English with ease. But Krantz wasn't necessarily suggesting that Jojo the dog-faced boy was actually Jacko the ape boy. Rather, he suggested that Jacko may have been promised to Barnum and slated to join his world-famous sideshow, but unfortunately died before he arrived in New York. Barnum, having already made posters and announcements about his upcoming dog-faced boy exhibit, was forced to improvise and find a replacement. To support his theory, Krantz points to descriptions of circus posters produced in 1884 that advertised JoJo's existence. Now considered lost, the posters allegedly showed a creature that looked nothing like the JoJo we all know and love. Krantz suggests that they were quietly replaced in 1885 with ones that featured an actual photograph. It's an interesting idea, but the poster argument isn't very persuasive. A lot of Barnum's sideshow posters were illustrated, and it makes sense that, in anticipation of Fedora's arrival in America, Barnum would have simply gone to one of those illustrators and said, Draw me a dog-faced boy. Based entirely on a rough description and the illustrator's imagination, the early poster would probably have looked nothing like the real JoJo, but that wouldn't have mattered. It was enough to generate some buzz before the first exhibition. This is all outlandish speculation, of course, but there's a charming logic behind it. If Jacko the Ape Boy was going to be part of a show, why not the greatest show on earth? There's one more bit of intrigue to add to the Barnum connection, and it's found in Chris Murphy's booklet, 
Around 2008, Murphy learned that the Barnum and Bailey collection, a treasure trove of photographs, documents, posters, and memorabilia, was purchased by a research organization. Everything was indexed, and a list of the contents was posted online. One particular item caught Murphy's eye, a single folder labeled Jacko. He contacted the curator and asked her to reveal what was inside. A short time later, she replied, the Jacko folder was empty. You couldn't ask for a better symbol for this legend. It's simple, enticing, and mysterious, but when you take a moment to look a little deeper, you're left empty-handed. That brings us to our final act. Act 4. The Jacko Hoax Yes, if you can believe it, there were and there are many people who found the Jacko story a little too hard to swallow. On July 9, 1884, just five days after the British colonist broke the story about Jacko, a rival newspaper, the Mainland Guardian, blasted the article and the newspapers that published it, declaring, quote, Absurdity is written on the face of it. The fact of the matter is that no such animal was caught, and how the colonist was duped in such a manner and by such a story is strange. And stranger still when the Columbian reproduced it in that paper, end quote. This surly editorial was attributed to R.E.X., a Guardian correspondent who, according to John Green, just so happened to be in Yale at the time of Jacko's alleged capture. The Bigfoot researcher discovered this accusation and declared in 1975 that it was 99% conclusive that the story of Jacko was a hoax. But wait, there are even more red flags. First, the colonist never responded when the Guardian called them out for essentially publishing fake news. Second, the original article, published in The Colonist on July 4, 1884, was printed with a dateline of July 3, 1882. Now, that could have simply been a mistake on the part of the typesetter, but it could also suggest that the article was actually written and submitted a full two years prior. The editor might have thought it was a hoax, but kept it in his back pocket anyway, and simply published it two years later when he needed to fill a gap on the page. This is actually pretty easy to believe, as a lot of frontier papers back then didn't really have a reputation for their editorial excellence. Finally, John Green points out one more disconcerting fact. There was a newspaper that specifically covered Yale and the surrounding area back in 1884. Now, at the alleged time of Jacko's capture, the publisher of the paper was ill, and he was also in the midst of moving his office from Yale to another city nearby. When he finally recovered from his sickness and got the press up and running, his paper made no mention of Jacko. Now there's one more newspaper article that, again, seems to have been largely overlooked or ignored. And if John Green was 99% certain that Jacko the Ape Boy was a hoax, well, this might bring that number up to at least 99.5. On August 24th, 1884, the British Colonist, the newspaper that started it all, printed one final article about Jacko. It read, quote, The Yale Wild Man. A gentleman from Yale called on us yesterday to deny the story that the capture of the wild man above Yale was a fact. He had been credited with being its keeper and has since been in receipt of letters from zoological gardens and circus proprietors in various parts of the continent asking his price for its disposal. He feels kind of mad about it, 
mad because he has not the wild man in stock, and wishes to inform the curiosity-hunting public that he is not open for any offers. End quote. Though the gentleman from Yale was not given a name, we can assume that this was Mr. George Tilbury, the man who was named as Jacko's handler. The modern Sasquatch researcher Chris Murphy mentions in his booklet how strange it is that, quote, people mentioned in the article did not complain about their names being shown in connection with a hoax, end quote. Well, it seems at least one of them did. So was it all a hoax? Well, we can never say for sure, but it certainly seems that way. John Green was pretty well convinced, and I think the additional articles I dug up all but confirm it. Even the Wikipedia entry is titled, The Jacko Hoax. Yes, it seems very likely that Jacko the Ape Boy was simply the product of fake news and 19th century trolls. In a 1975 article titled, Alas, Poor Jacko, John Green wrote, quote, There probably is no way to overhaul the story now, and various authors will borrow it from one another and reprint it as gospel, but at least the facts as we now know them are on record here. End quote. Green was right. Even now, more than 40 years after he and Sabina Sanderson lamented the demise of Jacko the Ape Boy, the legend lives on cited by countless people as solid proof in books, lectures, and websites about Bigfoot. It's hard to blame them, really. Jacko's story represents the holy grail of cryptozoology, the capture of a living, breathing Sasquatch, and it's wrapped in a sort of bittersweet tragedy. No one in the legend understood the incredible magnitude of their discovery. What could have been irrefutable proof of the creature's existence was simply tossed into the sea when it could no longer serve their immediate and short-sighted goals. Whether Jacko's story is true or not, it's still a great example of a local legend linked to national and international folklore. It shows us how one simple story can grow over time to persuade people of its veracity and absorb into its narrative multiple cities, a prominent First Nations chief, and none other than P.T. Barnum, the man who is said to have coined the phrase, there's a sucker born every minute. Real or hoax, the legend of Jacko the Ape Boy has inspired thousands of people in their own search for truth, and led them to question what they truly believe. On July 9, 1884, the same day the Guardian newspaper called the Jacko story absurd, the British colonist published a letter to the editor penned by J.B. Good and sent to them from the rectory in Nanaimo, B.C. In his letter, J.B. detailed how he had worked for a few years as a superintendent at the Lytton Indian Mission, just north of Yale. On three different occasions, he said, local indigenous people told him how a half-man, half-beast was spotted prowling around their camp in the dead of night and even came inside their tents. He admitted that he laughed at these stories and waved them away as superstitious nonsense. But then he read the story about Jacko, and suddenly he became more open-minded. It made him realize that, perhaps, there were more things waiting out there to be discovered. That, perhaps, he didn't have all the answers. It may appear, he wrote, that there was more truth about some of those tales than was dreamed of in our boasted enlightened philosophy. Whether you consider it fact or fiction, legend or lie, it seems we can still find elements of truth 
in this curious story of the curious creature, Jacko the Ape Boy. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and for joining me in becoming part of a Canadian folk tradition. Now that you know the story, share it. And remember, next time you're out camping and drinking by the fire, consider raising a toast to Jacko the Ape Boy, wherever he might be. Fireside Canada is written and recorded by me, David Williams. Sound design and mixing is by Ryan Clark. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving this podcast a positive review. If you want to help even further, you can support me through my website. Every little bit helps to keep the fire burning and the library of legends growing. Learn more at firesidecanada.ca.